Well, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I am talking about worship. Stereotypically, dumb jocks like me would use the opportunity to talk about worship in, in the context of 100,000 people watching a football game and millions more by television. I'm going to go a different direction this morning. Most of you know I have no artistic ability whatsoever. I mean none. And if you didn't know that, we need to spend some time together. I don't even do tic-tac-toe neatly. I can't do hangman with any artistic flair whatsoever. I have zero capability. And, and yet this church, as it grows, is getting filled with people with tremendous art skills, graphic designers and painters and musicians and actors and actresses. And, and you kind of just sort of feel overwhelmed, like how did I get in a community where I have nothing to contribute in this way? This past week, as I was studying to get more uh, acculturated to being with art people. Uh, I read a, a, a review of an art exhibit, and for the first time in my life, I realized that art people and, and sport people are not all that different. This is the most vicious tearing of an art exhibit I have ever heard. And not having been exposed to a lot, I thought everybody in the art world was like one big fun family who always encouraged each other. Not so much. Love is Enough is a modern art show presently at Oxford University in the UK that tries to draw parallels between historically praised artists Andy Warhol and William Morris. And according to the author of this critique, Richard Dormant of the British Daily Telegraph, it falls, falls short of its goals. And these, from that point on, I'm going to quote him. Quote, A vanity project is when a celebrity becomes so well-known that he or she is allowed to carry out an essentially worthless idea without the checks and balances that apply to less famous actors or artists. Deluded by a belief in their own brilliance and with no one around to say no to their every whim, they use the project to feed their egos. The inevitable result is a half-baked, self-indulgent mess. Nothing I've seen in any medium brings to touch the depths of the exhibition Jeremy Deller has put together about what he conceives to be the many points of similarity between two great artists, William Morris and Andy Warhol. But these exist only in his mind. Virtually every comparison he draws between the two, either in the catalog or in interviews, is at best half-truth, which he then justifies by blatant sophistry. Deller has foisted this exercise in fatuity on modern art Oxford. At least they aren't charging admission. Wow, that is nasty. And a first for me, so I'm getting cultured. The other thing I thought about as I like reflected on how similar this is to some sport columns I wrote for the, the website I used to write for, was that both the review of the art show and the show itself seem to be focused on the art curator instead of the art creators. The one who designed the show instead of the artist themselves. You know, art exhibits should make you celebrate the artists. There are other things that go on at art exhibitions but those things are generally peripheral to seeing the stars of the show. If I attended an art gallery and my big takeaway was the caterer, I've sort of missed the point. 
If you go to an art show and the only discussion post-attendance is the curator who designed the gallery, you may have missed the point or something else could be in play. The person who ran the gallery has somehow reduced the glory of the artist in his or her work. Now, I thought about this as it relates to worship and how often our goal in worship in any Christian setting in theory is supposed to be that we would worship Jesus, that he would be the one who's seen. But so often in worship, in churches, it's anything but that. People will leave talking about how they didn't like the music or how they loved the music or the sermon or the, ma- or the pastor. There's always some analysis of something peripheral to what we came here to see in the first place, which is Jesus. And perhaps it's the people who came with a different set of expectations and a different set of views Or it could be that the people who designed the worship service, and often in America that's the case, designed it with the intent to be the one who was in fact seen. This week at PRISM is the fourth of our membership sermon series. Now we are doing this because we are on our way towards receiving members as a church. We just installed our first class of elders this past fall And uh, we are now transitioning from the first three sermons in this message entitled Membership, We Are the Body, to this next three messages. The first three were under the category of Gospel Grace, Membership to Christ. This series, this next three, are under the category of Gospel Guidance or Membership to Each Other. And we'll look at what the scriptures say about how church people should be mutually committed to worship the Lord weekly with one another. This is a hot topic, actually, because oftentimes people are asking, does the Bible really say I have to go to church every week? And I would say personally that anytime I get to a place where I'm asking, do do I have to do this? Something needs to get adjusted in in my heart. Do I have to eat dinner? No, but I should want to eat dinner. So if there's something in my mind that's trying to get away with something, that's an immediate check for me. Going to church is not how we get God to love us in spite of what we felt growing up. We go to church to tell God we love him. We come to worship God for who he is and for what he's done. And our overarching presupposition taking from all of Scripture is that our Sabbath worship Our weekly praise and worship and time together is not primarily about us, but it's about honoring the God who created us. However, the day of rest, called the Sabbath in the scriptures, was commanded by God for our benefit too. Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This was instituted for our own benefit, our rest, our spiritual health, our spiritual strength. And if you think about it in terms of the way an agrarian culture worked, and this was the nature of the Old Testament, taking a day off from work was really cutting into your profits by one-seventh. And many of us can say the same. Now, those of us who have jobs where the the byproduct of our work isn't dependent on us being there one day a week, perhaps don't understand this as much as people who get who could make more money if they worked a seventh day of the week. So it's always been a challenge for people to see this as a benefit to them. In corporate worship, though, we find refreshment for our souls through a fresh understanding of who God is as we look to Scripture 
and as we experience the joy of his presence through each other and through our community, sacraments. I want to pause here and talk about sacraments for a minute for two reasons. One, I want to introduce to you what is a, a standard of our, our faith. In other words, in our particular church, we have doctrinal commitments. Uh, we have doctrinal standards. And one of the three doctrinal standards we have is called the New City Catechism. And it was a, a conglomeration of historically reformed confessions that got packed into one. It was put together by two men, uh, Don Carson and Tim Keller, one a Baptist, one a Presbyterian. And if you think about it as a whole, all, effectively all they did was remove the part of the, the old Reformed confessions that had a section that mandated baptism one way or another and just said this is going to be a, a unified presbyterian sort of catechism. And, and it is functionally for us as part of a Reformed doctrinal uh, association of churches one of our three standards. In this catechism, which in the next year we'll start going over with our kids and all kinds of fun stuff because we want them to learn as they grow, uh, one question, question 43 of the New City Catechism is this, what are the sacraments or ordinances? Now, Presbyterians, which I am, we, we tend to refer to them as sacraments. Baptists almost always refer to them as ordinances. Either way, this is what we mean when we say those two things. The sacraments or ordinances given by God and instituted by Christ, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper, are visible signs and seals that we are bound together as a community of faith by his death and resurrection. By our use of them, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. Our goal at PRISM is that our worship would be Christ-centered, and I share that at first before taking apart a couple of passages, a couple of pieces of today's passage to give you a couple of characteristics of the worship or where we fall on the continuum theologically with regards to worship. Practically, everybody would want to say that their worship was Christ-centered. For us, what we mean is we want all of what we do to point to Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, and how he desires to work in and through us as we follow him. Worship ultimately is about God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. Dr. R.C. Sproul, who was one of my professors, said the following, I believe that the one attribute of God that should inform our thinking about worship more than any other is his holiness. This is what defines his character and should be manifested in how we respond to him. To be sure, God is both transcendent and imminent. He is not merely remote and aloof and apart from us. He also comes to join us. He abides with us. He enters into fellowship. He brings us into his family. We invoke his presence. But when we are encouraged to draw near to him in the New Testament, in New Testament worship, we are encouraged to draw near to a God who, even in his imminence, is altogether holy. See, in my lifetime, I've seen worship trends go from we want Jesus to be our buddy to we shouldn't even refer to God by name. And God is saying, I'm neither, I'm both. I'm both close to you, but I'm also really holy. And so you need to reverence me in a really a meaningful, meaningful way through your worship. Now with this said though, I want to look at two aspects of our worship that today's read passage will speak to. Uh, when we have members at our church 
they will need to understand and mutually commit to one another to embrace these biblical principles about worship. And the first of these for us is that worship is selflessly the center of community. Worship is selflessly the center of community. Let me read verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14 again. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You see, implied and inferred by us in the text that worship is a communal experience. He's addressing multiple people. He's saying, what then, brothers, plural, when you come together, and it speaks of each of the individual contributions that people in church bring to this. And, and I have to encourage you that everyone has a role to play in worship, even if you're not standing up in front of people in church. The byproduct of Christian worship, according to the final portion of verse 26, is the building up of one another. We are told to let all things in worship be for our building up. Now, overarchingly, it's about the worship of God. But how we practically work out worship, it's supposed to be about encouraging and building up one another. This is an important recognition because, unfortunately, so many of us, and I include myself in this over my lifetime, have made our presence at church about what we get instead of what we give. You see in the Corinthian worship community in the text a problem with self-centeredness. People were either coming to worship only for themselves or using the means of worshiping God to extract some type of worship or honor for themselves. Either way, worship was not about building others up. It was about themselves. When we come together for Sabbath worship, as we're commanded to do in Scripture every week, every seventh day, And we don't care if it's Saturday, Sunday, or Monday for you, but you, according to Scripture, need to have a day where you say, this is my day to rest physically and to spiritually be refreshed and to worship God. That's not optional. The new covenant of Christ has not released you and I from the responsibility of resting our soul. The Sabbath was made for us. It's a gift to us, but it was commanded to us. We're supposed to see this context of worship as a means of not only having our own souls built up, but being used to build others as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 is a familiar passage to many. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, in some, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, the admonition and our promise and our desire here at prism is that sabbath worship would be the center of our community as it was in the old testament for the israelites as they walk through the desert the tabernacle and the presence of god smack dab in the middle of the community as they finally got to establish cities the temple the tabernacle right smack dab in the middle of the city even their priests they ran the city that was their inheritance so everything about what god was doing with his covenant people was saying Worshiping me is the center of what you do, and everything else flows from that. In our case, we're very specifically tying our Sunday worship community to the rest of our mission. You've read the sign, right? We're here to uh, revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture. That's why PRISM exists. If you haven't seen the sign, pay attention to it. It's the one out front. 
Brooks did it. It's really beautiful. Worship for us is the primary means by which our souls are revived. By experiencing God through each other, by experiencing God through our worship, by worshiping God and recognizing how fortunate we are, we are revived in our faith, which enables us to reach friends, care enough about others to care for them, and then renew culture, being his agents and his ambassadors as we do all manner of things in the community. Now, from the Old Testament through the New, corporate worship, the corporate worship of God was the centerpiece of the covenant people. And unfortunately, in our Western individualistic culture, many have retreated from seeing church attendance as mandatory, not simply for their benefit, but so that others may be built up by them. I uh, came to know the Lord in a really powerful way my senior year of high school through a girl I started to see. And she went to a Pentecostal church. I was raised Catholic. I loved it. I mean, I got to tell you, as a kid who was, in, uh, was never a big fan of super, lit- super liturgy, when I went to a church where there was a youth group and they had a band and all the kids raised their hands in worship, that meant something to me. It was really exciting. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was so, like, infused with, like, zeal, and, and I really experienced God and recommitted my heart to him. And, you know, as my parents saw me attending this church more frequently... Catholic parents as they were, they were deeply concerned about the kind of things I'd be learning there. And so eventually they said to me, you can go to the youth group on Thursday night, but you can't go any other time. So rebellious as I was, I started lying to my parents and showing up at the other services that this church had throughout the week. Now, I was a rebel when I was a non-believer, and I got to tell you, I became a believer and I've been a rebel since. So all I can say is be careful what you wish for. You know, you say you want your kid to be a Christian. He's probably going to be a really strong, committed, maybe even rebellious Christian. So I would, like, tell my parents I was sleeping over at friends' houses, and I was, but they would normally not make me get up and meet them for mass on Sunday mornings, and what I would do is I would sneak off to my girlfriend's church. I would say, hey, I'm going out with my girlfriend tonight, and then we would go first before we went to the movie to the Saturday night prayer and praise service. I mean, I was there all the time. We're going to do homework on Sunday night. We go to church first. This was how it was for me. As a newly committed believer, instinctively I knew that being with other believers, particularly ones my age at that time, was critical to my belief. I also have to point out, too, that my wonderful mom, who loves her son to death, listens to my sermons on our podcast every week, and so she finds out about all the stuff I did as a kid listening online. So it's probably appropriate at this point for me to pause and say, I love you, Mom. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, Each week, we all come to church. We all come here with burdens, things that are bothering us, things we're anxious about, ways that we need to be encouraged. And I have to tell you, that that includes your pastors, your elders, your staff, anybody who you think is a leader at this church comes with the same burdens. Each week, without fail, someone different says or does something that will give my soul a lift. I can't live without you all. God speaks to me through you. And that's true for each of you to each other. I'd ask you, who is missing your absence from church? Others need you to speak words of truth and encouragement to them. 
And to neglect weekly worship is then to make worship all about you. You have the opportunity each week to be used by God to bring the Spirit's life to someone's soul. You can pray with and for people. You can simply offer a hug or a listening ear. Your care enough to say, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in talking with you and listening well and maybe asking you to go get a hamburger afterwards. Those things minister to people, especially in a big city. A lot of lonely folks walk through our church doors. So you have the opportunity to be Jesus to them. Community worship is about building each other up. Worship in our community is selflessly the center of all we do. Second thing I'll share with you from our passage this morning, and this is where I'm going to get a little bit technical theologically because some of us come from perspectives that are more charismatic, others from more like Reformed Orthodox, and we're a church that's sort of trying to meld that together. So this might be a little over your head if, you're not, if you don't have a church background, and I ask your forgiveness in advance if it is. But the second thing I want to say to you today is that in our context, worship is scripturally constrained by Christ. Now, in some Reformed and Presbyterian circles, they refer to this as the regulative principle designed to say we don't do anything in worship that Scripture doesn't precisely tell us to do. In more charismatic circles, they would say we don't do anything in worship that would contradict Scripture. So that doesn't mean that if Scripture didn't lay it out for you, you can't do it. Not to make us look good, but we kind of meet somewhere in the middle of those two concepts what we want to say is we think and believe that the Spirit is still moving and powerful in the giftings of his people, but the exercise of those things are always to be done inside the constraints of Scripture. I want to read verses 31 and through 33 of 1 Corinthians 14. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, there are a bunch of things I could talk about in this passage, and I'm going to talk about a few. All right, first of all, some of the terms used are not necessarily the way they are fleshed out in American, like particularly experiential, charismatic worlds. Uh, The word prophecy in this particular section does not mean that God spoke to me audibly and I'm retreating to you what it is. In the small p prophecy sense, it's encouragement and teaching. So even when they came up one by one, they weren't, as I have seen in a number of churches, you know, people coming up and saying, thus saith the Lord, I give you a special word. And, And that's not necessarily how these verses are defined in the context of Scripture. So we're going to say, we're going to be careful to define our terms biblically as well and not just presume that the culture that we're a part of, whatever church culture we were a part of when we were growing up, is going to place definitions on those terms. We're going to look within the context. We're going to look within the entirety of Scripture to accurately define those things. Beyond that, I would say we're going to characterize ourselves doctrinally as quote-unquote mysterious continuationists. Now, a continuationist is somebody who believes differently about the, the, the movement of the spirit, the exercise of spiritual gifts, particularly sign gifts like tongues and healing and gifts of healing, differently than what are called cessationists or people who believe that these gifts 
have ceased or ceased after the apostolic age, the age when the scriptures were given through the authority of Jesus' apostles. We would be referred to in our, not just this church, but our network as a whole as mysterious continuationists. And what that means is we're convinced by scripture that signs and gifts of the spirit do continue. And we've not been convinced that they don't. However, we believe that the appropriation of these gifts is carried out mysteriously by the Holy Spirit and constrained by the teaching of Scripture. To put it another way, we don't create methodology like I've seen done in churches. I had a charismatic church I went to in college, and somebody wanted to pray in tongues, and they would, like, jumpstart them. They'd say, okay, economy auto. Say economy auto as fast as you can. Economy auto, economy auto, economy auto. And then, like, at some point, apparently, you're going to, you know, like hooking a, you know, a battery cable up to your mouth. You're going to all of a sudden jumpstart talking in tongues. I mean, they really created these type of really sort of crass variations on how we're going to get these gifts to show up in the church. They'd surround somebody in the middle of a service and everybody would be praying. And, you know, and, and it was kind of like, this is how it happens. Now, the problem was is that there were times where I tried to see that happen in my life where friends of mine sat around and prayed for uh, one of our roommates to receive the gift of tongues, and we prayed for hours and nothing happened. So what happens in the real world is that people will often have a crisis where the methodology, which in and of itself is not in the scriptures, doesn't work, and then they go, what happened? What's wrong? Well, part of the problem is you didn't get your methodology from the Bible. Now, we don't deny the Spirit's moving, but we believe that the scriptures are actually going to provide the context for that movement or else it's going to happen mysteriously and we're never going to know how and why and where it works. God may speak to you in your room some night about him wanting you to take a job or move to Kansas. I don't know. I can tell you and I wouldn't judge you for that. I would say scripture does say if you got some experience like that, it is wise to bring it to wise counsel, to pastors, to elders and say, did this really happen? But we would not say that that's not possible. There's nothing in Scripture that would tell me that that never happens. Let me give you one example from this passage about what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. This is what Paul says about tongues, which is a foreign language, an actual language that was given that people would, the Holy Spirit would speak and there would be somebody to interpret it and it would have the weight of Scripture for that particular church. They said, if any speak in tongues, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. On the one hand, a mysterious continuationist would not deny the movement of the spirit or the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. In fact, there are those of us at PRISM who openly profess to pray in tongues as the spirit would enable us. On the other hand, we do not define the outworking of this practice by anything but scripture. For instance, in this passage, we are told that in the event that there would be people who would speak in tongues in the course of a worship service, there's a cap on how many can, two or three. So, I mean, right away we're saying, okay, if that would happen in a church, theoretically, scriptures would only allow for two or three people to have that happen. I've been in churches where it just went on for hours with no, res- with no sense that there was any restriction at all in place. As well, they are supposed to go one at a time. 
And those who do pray in tongues must, and this is important to recognize in this passage, they must cognitively know, they must be able to identify with their mind that there would be an interpreter present before they began in the first place. So the, the, the scripture is saying, if there's no one to interpret, they need to keep silent. So they're saying it, that would mean that they would know. This isn't like a gumption they got from God. They would know in their head. There would be clear definition. Now, this is in direct contrast to how many modern expressions of so-called spiritual gift manifestation take place in churches, especially the kind you see on television. Often it's a chorus of people being prompted to jointly pray aloud or sing aloud in tongues where there is a single person when they do have that, generally they have no notion of whether or not an interpreter is there. There, haven't, there hasn't been put in the church any real clear definition that there was that. Again, there may be a time where somebody thinks, well, I presume that there must be one present because I have a prompting, but the scripture says here with clarity that you know who that person is, and just because you feel like you have something to say doesn't necessarily mean God would want you to say it. And then assuming that it is all done in an orderly fashion, and that's assuming that all of that would first be done in an orderly fashion, we are told presumably that the church leadership should then evaluate it for its authenticity. So every step of the way of this so-called charismatic experience has all these checks and balances, the scripture and authority, and you don't see any of that manifesting itself most of the time in churches that proclaim that they're experiencing the supernatural move of God. So mysterious continuationists see on one hand, in verse 33, for instance, we are commanded that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. But on the other hand, there seems implied in the text a purpose to tongues apart from public proclamation with an interpreter. That would be something that would be a benefit to the person and to God. Or else the apostle would have told them if there were no interpreter that they should just shut up. Instead, he says, if there's no interpreter, speak to yourself and God. So you may beg the question after this long theological discourse, how does the spirit work in worship? And we would say, not surprisingly, mysteriously. And through the means of grace given to the church, scripture and ordained leadership until elders of any particular church could confirm that someone had the gift of interpretation in the first place, our contention would be that there should never be a manifestation of tongues in a church service. In fact, Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians, especially in the 12th chapter, is not that there's not enough spiritual gifting taking place, but that it's taking place so badly and so out of order that it's completely distracting everybody from the author of our faith that somehow or another it's gotten so off the rails that it's like going to an art gallery and not knowing anything about the artist, instead having all of your attention drawn to these peripheral things. Paul's biggest concern was not that the church wasn't praying in tongues in their worship service. His biggest concern was that people were coming to worship and they thought worship was all about them and not a communal experience whereby God was working through his means of grace, the sacraments and worship and the word. This was Paul's concern. Hence, he spoke to them in 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one and said, earnestly desire the higher gifts. 
In that passage, Paul says that the, the words of exhortation and administration and really praying for people to be healed are more beneficial to the entire body. It didn't bother him at all. As a matter of fact, he would thought they were way too, way too focused on the supernatural gifts in all of their glory. Now, to bring this down to our level, let me tell you how this will manifest itself even next week at PRISM. Next week, we're going to invite those of you who need physical healing or mental healing to come for prayer during the response part of our worship service. When we have communion, we're going to have our elders up front who are going to anoint people with oil. It won't look like in a TV evangelist television service that people won't be passing out on the floor or doing anything that Scripture would dist- says would distract from the worship of Jesus. How we practice this may seem very staid and very orderly for some, and that's just fine with us. To be constrained by Scripture is not a bad thing. In fact, it is a commanded thing. And if people do get well, it will be by the power of God alone, not any of our tricks. And we will praise God for his faithfulness that was expressed to us in the Scriptures. It was Jesus' brother who said, In James 5, 14 and 15, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So this week we'll be sending out an email and saying if you'd like to be prayed for, let us know. And our elders will be ready. And during communion next week, we're going to have an opportunity for you to come. And right up here, we're going to anoint you with oil and pray for you and ask the Lord to heal you. And we believe that the Lord can and the Lord does and the Lord will, as he wills, bring about those things because his word has promised us that he'd do that. More importantly than being constrained by the word in our particular practical sense is that you and I have been called to commit to each other that we're going to be here to minister to one another during our worship. Sometimes, like I said before, it, it won't seem like much to you, but your presence means everything not just to others, but to God. Because see, at the very least, at the very least, friends, don't we owe him praise at least one hour a week? I mean, at the very least, isn't that something that all of us should be able to muster up the gumption to say, I'm going to come and worship God? I tell you, it'll change your life. It's a refreshing opportunity to see just how fortunate we are It opens our eyes to how gracious God is, how patient he is, and in that love, and he pulls us to himself through the sacrament as we do every week communion, and we're called to repentance, and it's not a repentance that we think, okay, I'll give it up and stop doing that. It's it's him saying, I have revealed myself to you in such a cool way. You know who I am now. I'm close to you, but I'm holy, and and we're, we're compelled to love him. All of that is the byproduct of corporate worship. You can't get that worshiping by yourself on a hike. You can worship Jesus on your hike, but you can't get the interaction of other believers. The Holy Spirit isn't working through somebody else to touch you. And most importantly, he's not working through you to touch somebody else on your Sunday morning hike. God has called you to worship with other people for his glory and for our mutual benefit. So let's pray to that end together, shall we? Father, our worship 
needs to be built, Lord, on response to you, uh, your grace that has been really distributed overwhelmingly to us. You alone are God. You alone are worthy of worship. Father, we have to confess that we are spoiled. And I have to, with my brothers and sisters, be the first to confess that I come to church so often thinking, what's in it for me? Instead of, am I worshiping you? And am I working on your behalf to care for and encourage other people? And I pray that as our church matures in this, as our people mature, not only in their commitment to be here for others and for you, they would mature in understanding just how they're growing as a result of it. Father, would you make that something that is tangibly beneficial and obvious so that we would thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name.